Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Anak Verhoeven. Anak is a professional climber from Belgium, and she is one of the most accomplished female sport climbers ever. Anak had an incredibly successful competition career. She won the Climbing World Championships as a junior in 2015. She won the European Championships as an adult in lead in 2017. She's won multiple World Cups and she's been on the podium in World Cups more times than I can count. Anak announced her retirement from competitions in 2021 to focus on her outdoor rock climbing and for good reason. She has one of the most impressive sport climbing resumes I can think of. I don't know if any other woman has climbed more nine A's and harder. It's really hard to know for sure, but she definitely has one of the most impressive sport climbing resumes out there. And I really enjoyed talking to her. I really enjoyed this episode. We talked about everything from her childhood, leading her first route at age four. We talked about why she quit competitions and got into a lot of her training. And I think this will be a really inspiring episode for any of you who don't have amazing facilities to train at. Anak has been able to build some of the best endurance of any climber in the world with pretty mediocre training facilities. She gets really creative with her training and there were a lot of great nuggets in that part of our conversation. We also talked about her faith. She is very open about being Christian and talks about that very publicly. That was something that she wanted to talk about, so I thought that was interesting. Many of you will know my story because I've talked about it on the podcast. I grew up in a Christian home and moved away from Christianity in my 20s. I became pretty disillusioned with a lot of the harm that's been done in the name of religion, and I personally don't resonate with it anymore. But as always, I think there's a lot of value in trying to understand people who have different beliefs than our own and trying to see the world through their eyes just to see what that looks like, even if it's only for a few minutes in a podcast conversation. I think that's really helpful and brings us together rather than dividing us. So I thought it was really interesting. I think it's probably going to make some of you uncomfortable, particularly my liberal American friends who are listening. But again, I do think it's really important to try to understand one another, even when we don't agree. So there you have it. Expect to hear a little bit about that towards the end of this conversation. We mostly talked about climbing. And once again, I really enjoyed it talking to Anak. All right, without further ado, let's dive in. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Anak Verhoeven. Okay, I think we're all good then. Okay. How are you feeling? Great. Yeah. Happy to be home after a pretty long trip of two and a half months. So yeah. I'm home in my room. Upstairs looks a little bit like your van. <laughs> it does <laughs> look a little bit like wood. my van. Yeah, yeah. Is that your bedroom? Yes. Is yes, that like it, is. it looks like it's mm -hmm. upstairs right below the roof? Exactly. Yes, yeah. the attic. Mm -hmm. nice. I like your van. Thank you. It's I like good. my van too. Yeah. Here's the super quick tour just to give you a sense of it. Um, yeah, I've been in here for four and a half years. Actually, just bought a house, so I can't say I'm a van lifer anymore. But uh, 
But yeah, I still live in the van like half the time and I love it. It's great. I love the wood on the ceiling. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What kind of a car is it? It's a Dodge Promaster. Yeah, 2014 Dodge Promaster. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. What do you do on a two and a half month trip? Are you with your family? Are you in a van? What does that look like for you? That's a long trip. It is van life. <laughs> van life, yeah. Yes. What, what are you, yeah, what's, what's your vehicle? We used to have a Volkswagen Transporter, just a workman's van, so not insulated. We've had some tough times <laughs> when it was freezing yeah. in the winter, but now we have a small mobile home, like the smallest version you can find, because mm. we need something for the three of us, my parents and me, and it wasn't easy to find, we figured, with three comfortable beds because sometimes you have two beds for the parents for adults and then one small something for a child and they call it three beds but if that is my bed it's just <laughs> not amazing because when i go on a trip it is for performing <laughs> yeah you're trying to climb 9a plus and you're like you can't sleep on a child's bed that's no good for recovery no no so we're really happy with what we found mm-hmm. very cool it's, great. it's a the brand and it's great you must have such a great relationship with your parents. I mean, I love my mom and dad, but I cannot imagine being in, in a tiny motorhome with them for two and a half months on a climbing trip. That's incredible. How is, is that, are, are there like, you know, are there difficulties and friction that comes up? Do you guys get along great? Like, what does that look like? It is a relationship test, right? <laughs> Good answer. Definitely. Yeah. Small space, like, especially with bad weather. Yeah. When you can't really You're go stuck outside in there. and sit in the sun or walk, yes. Yeah. But it works great. Okay. We have found a way to also just practically move besides each other and and have enough space somehow in the van, even when it's the three of us. So it just works. Yeah. Fine. It's all right. It is possible. But... uh <laughs> Of course, we are very used to each other's company. Yeah. Also, when we're home, we're when we are home and we're not on a trip, we spend a lot of time in the house as well. Especially when it's cold outside, so we are used to being around each other, and we manage just fine. Yeah, I mean, you you must just have such a great relationship with your parents. Your mom is your coach, or was your coach? I don't know if she still is, because now you've quit quit competitions. Um, your dad is your trainer and a lot of people were telling you guys like, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to last. And here you are, you've been doing it for a long time and it seems like you all make it work. And I mean, the results are speaking for themselves at this point. I have, I was kind of freshening up on your resume um, before talking to you. And I'm just like, I actually want to, this is a tangent, but I'm curious how famous are you in Europe? Because, you know, I have a very American centric view. I read American climbing news and it's very biased. And I'm just like, why aren't more people talking about you? Like your resume, you've done, I don't know, getting close to like 29 A's and harder or something at this point. And I, as far as I know, that is far beyond any other woman in sport climbing. So I'm fascinated by this, but how do you feel? How famous are you in Europe? Do you get recognized a lot? Do you get talked about? Do you go on talk shows? Wow. No, not, not like that. In the climbing community, people do recognize me. Yeah. For sure. And I tend to forget 
<laughs> I am somewhere in the climbing gym or at the crag and somebody comes up to me and is like, oh, can I have an autograph or can I take a picture with you? I'm like, oh, oh, yes, of course. They recognize me or they just... It surprises you? ...are talking to me and they say my name and I'm like, oh, yes, of course. They, um, <laughs> I do forget. But then in the normal world, <laughs> if I can call it the normal world, uh, people do not recognize me unless it's in my own tiny village here okay. in yeah. the supermarket <laughs> then uh, then people do know me but apart from that no i have been on national television and in newspapers and and some shows but that doesn't make any difference at all mm. uh, when i'm just walking on the street or <laughs> going to right going uh, or anything no 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 you're not getting mobbed <laughs> by the paparazzi <laughs> at all yeah <laughs> no do you do you feel like you even... go ahead i'm sorry to cut you off go ahead what were you gonna say oh, i'm just i was just gonna add i don't even know if there are any climbers in europe that experience that okay kind of fame yeah i, I mean may, yeah maybe a couple i mean i i don't know i i just talked to jakob schubert and you know growing up in innsbruck where it's so climbing centric i imagine that he and I, I've seen this a little bit. It seems like he's just like a national hero, you know, like climbers there, Killian Fischuber on a store, like back in the day, you know, they're they're going on regular television programs and, and stuff like that. And they're they're like, I don't know, NFL football players here in the States or something. It's it's kind of a different culture. Um, but yeah, that's interesting to hear. Some, some do have that, uh, maybe a handful of climbers yeah. in their own country. And yeah, thinking about Yanya or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also in, in Asia, I've seen that mm. that it's uh, very different when climbing is a big, big national sport. That changed a lot. A lot right. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Do you feel like you deserve or want more recognition for what you've accomplished? Because I feel like there's a disconnect here. Like, why aren't more people talking about you? You know, but do you ever think about that? No, it's not the reason I climb. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I don't really care Yeah. about it. Uh, Would it affect your livelihood? Like, are you are you making your living from just climbing with sponsors and stuff at this point? Oh, that would definitely make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so, for that aspect, it would be helpful. But just for myself and my own worth let's say and, and the way i view myself it really doesn't matter but then for making a living of it oh yes mm-hmm. that is very difficult right now or impossible basically mm. yeah. yeah do you do you do other work like on the side to support yourself or is it just like getting support from mom and dad and living at home i mean it's yeah it seems like you still live with your parents that obviously helps a lot right there with your that's with it. your coach and yes. trainer and that's it yeah that makes sense <laughs> That's the way I I manage, uh, which is which is fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to be home. Yeah, uh, I'm guessing it will stay that way until I get married. <laughs> so uh, I'm totally fine with the situation I'm in. Yeah, uh, but I do not have another job. I would just not be able to reach that same level with a job on the side. Yeah. Unless I decided not to be a professional climber, and by professional I mean working with brands, so I do that, but it's relatively small still, and 
it is helpful, but it's not enough to make a real living out of it. So, so no, it, climbing takes a lot of time, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so much the time. training hours and all of that already, it's a big chunk of time. And then having a real job on the side would be hard with all the things I have to do because I'm not only climbing usually. Um, or very often people think that it's just climbing, just being in the gym or on rock, but there is a lot of desk work involved and communication and writing articles and doing that kind of stuff. So um, so that is already a job, you can right. say. So a tiny business <laughs> yeah. that you need to... And uh, yeah, that takes a lot of time. So I don't have next to that. So, so I've been talking to quite a lot of people over the past years, other athletes and colleagues, and it's really interesting how everybody finds their own way of being an athlete and finding the time and the energy to train and also just live and work with brands. And I was talking to, to some Spanish climbers recently, and they said, well, you need to choose. Either you're a professional athlete, like I said, and then you work with brands, and you spend a lot of time doing that and, and you follow that road where you communicate with them and do things for them in return, or you are still an athlete and professional in the sense that you have a high level and it's just quality, <laughs> the climbing you're doing, but um, you're also working on the side, which mm. might maybe just as much time depending on the job. Uh, so, so right now I'm just, I'm working with brands and it's kind of enough okay. <laughs> doing that and just, yeah. and just living and, and yeah, keeping my head above water. Doing that. <laughs> well, I hope that continues to expand for you as climbing continues to grow and expand. I mean, you're, you are one of the best climbers in the world and you should be able to make a damn living, you know, <laughs> just from climbing so that you can keep doing it. Cause we all want you to keep doing it. Yeah. I, I hope for that for you as climbing continues to grow. Maybe with the next Olympics, we'll get another surge of interest from people and more, you know, more money being spent with these brands and um, bigger budgets for athletes like you and things like that. We'll but see what the happens. fact that it's so small, because it's really small for us, it's, it's a family thing, <laughs> you could say. It also has its advantages. So maybe not from a financial point of view, but it's also nice sometimes that it's still pretty small and, and it's also real life. I'm learning a lot because I also have to do everything on my own. Mm. And so I have some help from my parents, which is very helpful as well, but it's still us doing it. And so I see all the real life stuff. I don't have a manager and, and sometimes it's, it's difficult to do all of those tasks that sometimes in some cases with other athletes, other people are doing for them. So I'm doing a lot of my own research also with diet and, and other things for training and prevention and, and all of those side things, but it's so interesting and I'm learning every day. So mm. that is the advantage of it being so very small. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I mean, that's both um, empowering and and great, but also just like, yeah, that's it's a lot of work to be on top of all those different aspects of your preparation for the climbing you want to do. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your childhood. So I already teased that your mom 
is or was your coach when you were competing. I don't know if she still, I don't know if you still consider her a coach. Um, your dad is your trainer. So they must have, I, mean, I know you all go climbing together. So they must have a deep background in climbing. You started super young, you know, at four years old, you start taking competitions seriously at age 11. Why did you and your mom decide to work together? Why, why did you decide to have her as your coach? Or was that just out of necessity? Like you had no other, no other option being in Belgium and um, not having support from national team or, or whatever. What did that look like? Yes, you mentioned it there. That's exactly the way it went. First with my father. So I made the distinction trainer and coach there just because my father started training me really. So to make me a better climber. And that was early on. So ever since I did my first competitions and that as well was out of necessity because there were no trainers around. That was the way it was. So there was a bigger climbing history in the south of Belgium, but in the northern part where we live, we had to be pioneers. <laughs> so there was almost nothing which again taught us a lot but it's it's hard as well because there has nobody been before you whom you can look up to or learn from so we just had to do everything ourselves also the training aspect and then later on the competitions and so the coach i call it coach is the one going to the competitions with the athlete so that is what my mother did for me again because there was nobody <laughs> So we had to do it that way, but I've no reason to complain. It it was great. So yeah, it's amazing. It was out of necessity, but I wouldn't have had it any other way. Hmm. It was great. So they were climbers and are still climbers. As you said, they never competed themselves because they started pretty late. I think my dad was in his late 30s mm. but they had been involved in the competition world for a long time so they started climbing before i was born and then around the time i was born my father started being a judge first on the national level so a climbing judge and then for the international federation so he was doing that when i was a little girl and he even took me to competitions and world cups I remember one time in particular, which was in 2005 in the summer, and it was the the World Championships in Munich. So the biggest competition at the time there was. And we were there, my mother and I, and I could just run around the whole time and, and ask the athletes for autographs. And I was having time of my life. I, I loved it so much, just being there and seeing all the athletes and and it was so normal for me to to be there and to see all those people competing. But the funny thing was that as I was collecting autographs, I was already practicing my own because <laughs> I figured, well, I am a climber. So what happens when you're a climber? You grow up to do what I see them doing. That's what I'm going to do when I'm older, I thought it was a normal thing because <laughs> I was a climber too. So I was going to compete like, like they were. So which now <laughs> I understand, obviously it's not, <laughs> it's not the way it goes for everybody, but I thought I was going to do that. So I practiced my 
autograph just for one day in the far future, which turned out not to be that far away. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, time goes so fast that I did didn't end up doing what I saw them doing. And so, so yes, I grew up in that world and my parents did a great job. I mean, I admire them for it because they understood competitions very well, but they had never been competitors themselves. The important thing that they did have, I think, was that they understood high-level sports and they really had that mindset. And that is so crucial because sometimes professional coaches or trainers can lack that mindset of, of just high level sports because it's it's a tough world to be in really with all the disappointment and pressure and stress and, and working toward a goal with the risk of failure also as a family because you're investing so much and still they were amazing at that and, and amazing at supporting me hmm. i have lots of examples of that but for example i um, was competing in my first international competition, it was a youth competition, European Youth Cup in Austria. That was June or May, I think, of 2010. And I remember watching the other girls in the first qualification route, because that is what they call flesh. So you're allowed to see the others and there is a demonstration of the routes. In the next rounds, you need to climb on site. But I was watching those girls And my father was standing next to me and he said, you're going to top that route. You're going to send it. And nobody had sent yet. And my reaction was like, all right, okay, I will do that. (laughs) And of course you need to be in a good shape for performing, but the mental part is so, so important. Mm. So that is a mindset I had going to that route and I did top it. Turned out I was the only one who managed to do that. I was so surprised because I had no idea how I was going to do in that competition, but it was great. And my dad had that confidence in me. And and that is such a positive aspect. And it has been there all throughout my career. And and it's still the way we work. Mm. So they are amazing support. That's incredible. And I can imagine... You know, at that point, your dad knows you're climbing incredibly well because he's working with you every day. So he has the knowledge to actually inject that confidence and and know that he's not going to be leading you astray. You know, he's not setting you up for false hope or something. At the same time, how did your parents help you manage expectations as a kid? Because I can imagine you grew up in this shiny world thinking that, you know, if I, I'm a climber, so eventually I'm going to be standing on that podium over there. Um, but then competitions are really difficult and there's all these other amazing athletes. Like, did you have any big disappointments as a kid and and how did your parents help you prepare for that or go through that and work through that when those things did come up? Hmm. Good question. I don't know exactly what they were thinking at the time, of course, because I was a little kid, but that's not something they could control, of course, but the start of my competition career was was very impactful and because it was not very successful. Mm. So um, I was a good climber already at 
age 11, 12, but I was the youngest in my age group and I was a lot smaller. So in my first season, it's a small season of national youth competitions, I always ended up in fourth place. And I've always fell in the final routes because I was too small. Mm. And I didn't always realize that I was just really small and smaller compared to the other girls. But that was really good as a start because I didn't start winning right away. Mm. So that was really good. It's not something my parents did. So going back to your question, but it's something that just so happened and it was very positive for me and for my character because, yeah, I I was fine because I always did my very best. And then the year after that, I started winning and I kept winning all the competitions, but that start was so good. Mm. Apart from that, I there was one very important thing in the way we handle disappointment as well, and that is that I knew that my parents were never going to be disappointed in me as a person. Mm. So they would be disappointed in the situation maybe, which was nice because imagine me being there super disappointed and my parents just don't care. <laughs> that wouldn't be nice. <laughs> right. So they cared. They were sad for me. And of course, they also wanted good results because we had worked for it super hard. But at the same time, I was still allowed to make mistakes because everybody makes mistakes. And, and I knew their disappointment would not be in me. And, and that was, that gave me such peace of mind, um, to put it that way. That was amazing. So I don't know if it answers your question, but I think they did a great job and, and they managed that aspect of disappointment really well with me. And at the same time, we, as I mentioned before, we, we took the risk to be very disappointed because sometimes I hear athletes and they set goals for themselves that are too low. Like they set the bar too low. And my father never did that. And as a result, I didn't do that either. And it's still true on rock. I mean, when you, when you set your goals really high, of course, there needs to be a level of, of like realistic <laughs> expectations. But you also, you're allowed to set the bar really high because if it's too low, it's easy to re reach your goals, but you're never going to be able to push your limits. Yeah. Like the furthest you can push them. And we did that. And then going into competitions, especially things can go wrong. You know that beforehand, but that's part of being an athlete. And then my parents never tried to avoid so they taught me a lot in that sense as well. And then, and then, of course, when disappointment hits, it's, it's hard because <laughs> you're trying not to think about it because then you can get paralyzed when you're thinking all the time, oh, no, what could go wrong? And, and what if I make a mistake and I fall super early? Or you're trying not to think too much about that because that doesn't help <laughs> to climb well. It does happen, and it did happen a lot. Then we somehow managed to go through it also as a family, talking a lot about it and then just moving on to the next thing. And then, yeah, and setting the bar high, high again. <laughs> and then there is, there is room for success and always the possibility of, of failure as well. That's a beautiful answer. 
Yeah, thank you for all of that. I'm curious, is it ever, do you ever feel like it's difficult to navigate um, having your parents as trainer and coach? Like, do you ever need to say to them like, mom, I just need you to be my mom right now. I need you to not be my coach right now. I just need mom right now. Or dad, I just need you to be my dad right now. Um, does that ever happen? And, and how do you guys navigate kind of them having these different hats that they can put on? Yes, not really. It, it always blended together really nicely. And it really works well. So you asked earlier, uh, is your mother still your coach? No. So I stopped competing in 2021 uh, because I really wanted to focus on outdoor climbing. I'd always combined both, but with the long competition seasons, it was just so hard to climb on rock as much as I wanted to. So now she is not my coach anymore. Before that, she traveled with me to all the World Cups. We traveled to Asia. We did everything together. And my father stayed at home then, being very nervous and <laughs> watching the live stream. It must be horrible as a parent. <laughs> but he was with us for the competitions in Europe most of the time when we went by car. But then when we were flying to competitions, it was just my mother and I. But she isn't my coach anymore. But And uh, my father does come with me on climbing trips. Sometimes my mother can join us. But we still work very closely together, even though I mostly train myself at this point. So going back to the question, well, it wasn't really split these relationship of parent, daughter, and then coach, athlete. Mm. Not really. It all blended together. We just, yes, we navigated it and they stayed my parents all throughout it, which can be a little bit tricky at times because there is no separation between the professional life and <laughs> family life. But it also makes for some really fun interactions and, and ways of handling the job, meaning that we have these meetings around the dinner table. And I sometimes even have my list to go through <laughs> after the meal and that's how we do things. <laughs> so, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It works. It works amazingly well. Uh, but it, it is true that it's it's not always easy because you're together all the time and things would have been very, very different had I worked with an external coach. At the same time, I, I don't know how that is. So I can't really speak for it, but I can imagine that it's very different. When it comes to communicating, um, they know me very well, which is a positive aspect as well. But then they also stay my parents. So, yes, as you say, it's 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 pretty unique. There are some other athletes who have that situation also in the climbing world, but not that much, I think. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. But I think there, in my my situation at least, there are more positive aspects to it than negative ones. That's beautiful. What do you all do together on a rest day if the weather's bad and you're stuck in that little camper if you're on a climbing trip? How do you pass the time? Do you play games together? Do you just all sit and you know read and do your own things? Are you on your computer doing work or writing articles? Okay, rest days pass by so so quickly 
I always wish they were longer. So I don't know the word boredom. It's just not in my vocabulary. And <laughs> I, I always have so much to do. So as you know, first things are things that need to be done. So we need to go search for water and maybe go grocery shopping, maybe do some laundry <laughs> and, and cook and, and do all of those things. That's already a big chunk of the time. So then next to that, I always try to do some exercises because I need my stretching. I'm very not flexible <laughs> uh, naturally, so I need to work for that. Do some prevention exercises, mobility. Um, so that is part of the rest day. In wintertime, it usually ends up being in the cold outside in the dark that I still try to to fit in those exercises because I really want to do them. And then there is, as you said, the computer work that also needs to be done. So all of that together, I'm for sure forgetting some stuff. It just fills up a rest day and I was like, oh, it's already over. <laughs> so it, we really don't need to search for things to to fill the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not quite. Not quite. Yeah. But I yeah. like that. I, I really do like it. But there's always much to do. There's always so much to do. I, I totally resonate with that. And I'm always, I've been doing this for four years, being in the van four and a half years. And uh, I tell people this, like, li like if you want to imagine what it's like, because it is great, you know, you feel very free. It's very fun. There's a lot of novelty and it, it feels like you're just out camping all the time because you are. But life is just 30% less efficient full stop, just across the board, you know, like using the bathroom, showering, getting groceries, getting water. Like my fridge is a fifth the size of a normal fridge. So I just can't buy as many groceries. So I have to go to the store way more often. Like there's so many little things like that, that add up and, and make such a difference. And I have the same feeling often where I'm like, this happened yesterday. I was like, how the fuck is it already 7 PM? Like what happened today? I woke up, I had a meeting, I worked for a while and it's 7 PM. I don't know. I don't understand <laughs> what's going on. Um, yes. Yeah. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's all these yeah. things that it's I, just... I just imagined I would have all these, all this time for all these leisure activities. I thought I would like lay in my bed in my van and read a lot, you know, with the door open and a beautiful view or something. I never do that. You know, I built a roof deck so I could sit up there and have coffee in the morning and like watch the sunrise. I never do wow. that. You know, <laughs> I just, just normal, just <laughs> cooking, errands, working. Yeah. Trying to like do a little stretching, do a little finger work, you know, finger health stuff on my rest days. And there you go. The day's gone. Yeah. 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 There you said it. Washing ourselves as well is, uh, it just takes so much time compared to when you're home mm -hmm. in a house. Uh, with the previous van we had, we had this whole system for washing my hair as well, where we had a bucket and then I washed my hair in the bucket like van lifers often do. So now I'm speaking when it's cold and we're inside. But then for drying it, because I like drying it, especially in that van, we didn't have any heating, like a small Oof. thing, but it could get very warm. And so the walls were just metal, no insulation. So I really wanted to dry my hair and not get sick. So then we used to drive around 
and then the heating of the car <laughs> was like we all um focused it on one one of the heaters like one point and then we would drive around and that was my hair dryer and it worked, <laughs> it worked great that's brilliant but we have all these little systems to be more efficient and uh yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's, <laughs> it does take a lot of time to just just live and make sure the little house, because that's what it is, it's just a tiny house, keeps working well. And, and yeah, and then when you're stuck inside on a rest day, well, then you focus on the computer work and those things that need to get done and just, just cooking meals and doing the dishes and all of those things. But yeah, making sure that everything's tidy because it really needs to be tidy when you're living in such yeah. a small space. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And then the day's over. That is one nice thing. I mean, you really, when you leave a mess, you really notice it. Um, but it also takes like, you know, 30 seconds to clean up because the van's so small. There's, you know, there's not that much to do. So I do like that part of it. <laughs> Yeah. How did how did rock climbing, how did outdoor rock climbing first um, come into the picture? What did that look like when you were little? Did you start with outdoor rock climbing? And when did you fall in love with it? Like, did you always love it? Or was there a particular trip or a particular crag or climb that really changed your relationship with, with rock climbing in particular? That's a great question. So... First thing, outdoor climbing, that is how I started. So I had always been scrambling on little rocks and child-sized boulders because I kind of grew up at the base of cliffs, of crags, because we spent a lot of time climbing outdoors as a family when I was a baby and a toddler. So that was my natural habitat, and that's also <laughs> how I started climbing. So I, I always saw people climbing and I imitated it as most children do. But then I always say that I officially started climbing around my fourth birthday because that is when I led my first route. Wow. So I had the quick draws on my little harness and it was a children's route. So very easy, just no hands rests all the way up, you know, for, for little kids, but still I was hanging the quick draws and it was safe. My mother was belaying and my father was climbing right next to me. Hmm. So I even have a photo of it. Oh, you should really send that to nice me. I would memory. love that. I would love to share that with people. I will. So that is how I started. But then of course, as a child, it was just playing and it wasn't serious at all. And I was not pushed to climb. My parents never pushed me, but I just never tried any other sports. Mm. I didn't see the need for it because that was my sport and I was happy about it. But then it has been a very, very slow progress to actually start loving the sport and being passionate about it. Mm. And people have a hard time believing me when I try to explain it. <laughs> but... When it started being more serious, so around the age of 11, I started climbing once a week, and then it gradually became more and more. I was very motivated to train, but not because I liked climbing so much. 
it's really weird, I know, but it's the reason I was so motivated is just because I quickly realized that by training, I could get stronger and I would do better in competitions. And that was really my driving force, just wanting to be a better climber. And, and I really understood the effects of training very early on, which is a good thing. But that is also what kept pushing me later on and not climbing, not the sport for, for what it is. So my uh, story is very different from people who try a lot of different sports and then end up becoming climbers because they discover climbing and they say, wow, this is it. For me, it was not the case because I had just never known anything else. And, and I thought it was it was normal. Um, so fast forward to today. Now I really do appreciate climbing for what it is and the movement. And I know it's just an amazing sport being out, out there in nature and being high up on a, on a rock. And, and now I do understand it. But back then I did not. And it has taken a long, long time be before I could really say I love climbing and I like climbing. Hmm. That, yeah, that so, is interesting. What has happened between when I was around the age of 11 and today? Well, really, it's, it, was, it was a whole process uh, because as climbing became more serious, it also started to be more about suffering for me. So again, nobody pushed me to do that. It was really my own choice. But it meant that the that climbing was linked, and I could almost say only linked to suffering and to hard training, and not really to something super enjoyable. Of course, doing well in competitions and also sending routes outside, that is enjoyable. But then all the rest, like the whole preparation for it, which is a way bigger percentage that was just hard work also because I was very hard on myself <laughs> and because I was pushing myself so much and, and I tend to be kind of a perfectionist which is not always a good thing so it's really it's hard to to deal with that and I have already learned a lot about um, dealing with the negative aspects of it uh, so, so that was the mentality I had and it has allowed me to do well, of course, but also it just meant that climbing was, was hard. Hmm. It was, yeah, just, just a lot of hard work. And so I think looking back today that one of the big things that changed my view of climbing was getting injured actually, okay. because then I had to stop. So I've had several things. And uh, the first time I stopped for three months and then a few years later again, and, and several things have happened in my career where I had to take a step back. And I think there might be other things that maybe also just getting a little older <laughs> might've helped too, but injury definitely that has been um, positive for those things that I really started appreciating climbing more. And I wasn't able to climb for a while. And then I started realizing like, wow, I'm actually able to do something really special, which not that many people can, can do in their life. It's 
it's not just a sport. And a lot of climbers, I think, will say that it, it's a very special sport. It's very unique. It's it's also the movements and all of that, and and all the variety that there is in climbing with all the different kinds of rock and and features and places to go and as I said, movement and holds. It's a great sport, and I see that more clearly now than I did back then. So I hope that answers your question. But it's been a long, long way to being able to say that I love climbing. That is, yeah, that is so interesting. It had to be kind of taken away for you to gain that perspective and appreciation of it and the love for it. And um, I love what you just touched on at the end there. Like that is something that I think is so uniquely special about climbing is that there's, I, I can't think of any other sport or activity that has such a broad umbrella. Like it's all climbing. Competition climbing is climbing. Bouldering, trying the hardest thing you can possibly do is climbing. Climbing in the gym for fun is climbing. Doing alpine routes, you know, snowy mixed rock and alpine routes to get up to the top of some mountain is climbing. Like you can really pivot and try so many different things and have so many different unique experiences and have so much variety and keep it fresh and switch it up. And it's all, it's all climbing, you know, you can't do that with football or, um, I don't know, even, even skiing, like, or, or surfing, like there's just not the same amount of, of options and, and variety. And that's such a special thing. You know, there's kind of this like built in evolution, like as we age, as we, you know, you go from competition climbing, now you're focused on hard, you know, endurance steep sport climbing. And you can probably do that for a long, long time. But then, you know, you and I, like when we're both 60 years old or 70 years old or whatever, we can still be climbers. It's going to look different probably, but there's still going to be ways to challenge ourselves and have adventures. And that is so cool. It gets me so excited. Yeah. My father once met two climbers. I think they were 80 years old and they were starting up this multi-pitch in France. Just the two of them doing the multi-pitch. They knew it by heart, but still it's amazing <laughs> what you can do yeah. as a climber. And, and also one of the things I really appreciate when I go to athletes meetings. So that is very nice when a brand organizes an athlete meet, athletes meeting and you get to be there with colleagues, but everybody is specialized in a different form of climbing. Mm. That is so nice because you can feel the respect of the others and you also respect them for what they do, but we all do something different. And it's still called climbing, but it's so different because, like you said, you have the boulders and then you have the comp climbers that are specialized in lead and the ones that are specialized in bouldering. And then you have the big wall climbers and the trad climbers and, and ice climbers. It's, it's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and also that you can write those things yourself and kind of feel like a beginner again in your own sport. I really enjoy that. Mm. I've had that with track climbing. I hope to do more of that in the future, actually this year. So that is so nice. You mm. can learn all these different skills, but you can also use all of your own experience in another discipline and still be a beginner and learn from other climbers. It's so cool. And we will be right back. 
This episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. Rhino provides the best skincare products on the market for climbers made from plant-based, great quality ingredients with no fillers and no BS. I still use the repair cream all the time, and it really does wonders for helping my skin heal faster after a hard outdoor bouldering session. If I come home from a day of climbing and my skin is torn up, I wash my hands. I love Rhino's Wash product for that, that's new. And then I immediately apply the repair cream and I apply it several times throughout the evening. If I have really damaged skin, like a flapper or a split or something like that, I've been psyched on a new product from Rhino called Split Plus. It's made for severely chapped or worn or cracked skin, and it's awesome. I was recently trying a project on Flagstaff Mountain near Boulder, Colorado, which is the sharpest place I've ever climbed, and I was using Split Plus a lot, and it really, really helped. If you wanna level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. Again, that's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off the best skincare products in the game. This episode is brought to you by Green Chef. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Whether you prefer keto, plant-based, Mediterranean, or gluten-free foods, Green Chef has tasty meals just for you and your way of eating. The thing I love about Green Chef is the quality of their food. Green Chef is the first certified organic meal kit company with recipes that bring you farm fresh ingredients like figs, dates, and artichokes, sustainably sourced seafood, organic cage-free eggs, and antibiotic and hormone-free chicken. That means that no matter what type of food you prefer to eat, you can get the convenience of a meal kit service without compromising on food quality. And for me personally, eating quality food is the most important thing I do to feel good. I really think it makes a difference. I recently had some green chefs sent to my parents' house in Washington since I live in a van. And one of the dinners we had was a spicy sesame shrimp stir fry with broccoli, cashews, and a spicy ginger lime aioli sauce. It was so good. Everyone loved it. It was healthy and it took 15 minutes to put together. It was amazing. Right now, my dear listeners, Green Chef is offering you guys 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. Go to greenchef.com slash 60 nugget. That's 60 nugget and use code 60 nugget to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. And now back to the show. So cool. That's awesome. I'm going to bookmark trad climbing. We're going to come back to that. Okay. I'm very curious about your goals for this year. Um, But I want to ask you, why did you ultimately decide to move away from competition climbing? It seemed, you know, I heard your dad say it in in a great way. He said that um, a knack has always been torn between two lovers. She has her outdoor rock climbing goals and then she has the competition climbing. And, and that makes sense. You know, it's really hard to do both at a, at a high level. Do you feel like you're completely done with competitions? And if so, why did you make that decision? Was that a difficult decision? And what was it that ultimately um, led you to move away from competitions? Wow, it was extremely difficult because it had been such a big part of my life for such a long time. And it took months, I should say, of 
making lists because I like to write everything down, especially lists. I live by lists. So I also had a list of positive aspects and negative aspects of both. And then I put all of those in the scale and it just clearly tipped over to the, the outdoor climbing side. And that's really how I decided because I had such a hard time saying goodbye to the competition world mm. because I wasn't done really. I didn't feel like I was done competition climbing in terms of goals. I still had, but at the same time, I'm really glad I did take that decision. Mm. Now I'm, I'm really glad I did at the time that I did, but back then it was very difficult and a, a little bit complex still today for me to be able to summarize exactly why I did it, except for the one thing I mentioned earlier that I just really wanted to do more outdoor climbing. That was, that was a big thing. And for that, it's really good that I stopped competing. But apart from that, I could maybe write a book about it because there were so <laughs> many different aspects to it that, I don't fully understand it myself yet, but but it was really good the way I did. And then I don't think I was ready for it earlier in my career. So it was a really good time stopping then, even though I still had some goals left. And, and I think it happens very often to climbers, even though they've reached a lot of their goals. It's really hard to say now it's been enough. It's it's a really tricky thing right. to then say this was the last competition and I will never ever do that again. And you put a stop to it and you know, you will never add anything more to that list of competitions. It feels a little bit strange and it's still strange today when I watch the live stream. So yeah, it's, it's a funny thing because you're so focused on those competitions and those seasons those competition seasons and then when you step out of it it's it's a strange feeling uh because it's been a part of your life for so long why did you feel it's the way you're talking about it it sounds very much like all or nothing like you're either still competing and you're doing all the competitions and like really focused on it or you're done and you're never going to do another one. Yeah. What, why is that? Is that because, you know, it, it, because you can't compete the way that you want to, you, you can't show up for the competitions being the climber that you want to be at that competition. If you're just kind of dipping your toe in every once in a while and, and only competing every once in a while, why did you feel like you had to completely stop versus like, Oh, I'll do three competitions a year from now on instead of, you know, 20 or, or whatever. For some people, that's totally possible. But for me, with my personality, I don't think it is. And it was important for me to really stop and not have this little idea in the back of my head, like, okay, maybe someday I will go back. So right now, I truly don't have any plans to start competing again. So I... I know for other climbers, it's different and they do manage it that way. And they say, well, we'll just do the world championships this year and maybe two world cups or something like that. 
depending on the year and their outdoor projects and, and which competitions take place in the season. But that is not the way I function, I think. And and you put it really well. It's either I go for it and I really focus on being the best athlete I can be in the competition world or I don't do it. So, yeah, that's how I see it. And I think it's just a personality thing. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me a little bit, you see that personality from time to time, right? It reminds me of Jerry Moffat. I mean, his was even more extreme. It was like, if I can't be the best climber in the world, I'm done. (laughs) I'm just completely done with the sport. You know, it's like, damn, okay. But I mean, that works for him. That's his personality and it, it fits him, you know, it it fits his, his character. And, um, and he doesn't seem to have any regrets. He doesn't really seem to, to miss it. He's, surfing and you know driving fast cars and raising a family and whatever he's doing but um yeah yeah that's interesting right also i can see what it was not like one of the things that people sometimes suppose made me stop competing and it's not the case that is injury so at the the exact moment i decided to quit the competition world i was actually injury free finally after a long time so would have been the the perfect moment to start again because I had had about two seasons where I couldn't perform at my best because of something with my arm and it, I wouldn't call it an injury just to 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 make it clear that I wasn't destroying my body because uh, that is not wise but I had the green light to just keep climbing but it was really hard to perform that way. And then there was 2020 when there weren't any competitions. And then 2021 is when I decided to stop. So it would have been the perfect time to start again. And also a good time to start uh, focusing on, on outdoor performances. So both were, were nice options, but I definitely did not stop competing for injury. Mm. Yeah. I do want to talk about that injury a little bit. Um, yeah, you had this, I have a note in front of me, you had this really strange injury for three and a half years. Is that right? Where you had, uh, just a restriction of blood flow in your right arm that you couldn't figure out. And, you know, it's, it's not like you broke your arm. It's not like you tore some tendon or something, but it sounds so frustrating to just have this thing that's keeping you from being at your best. And you know that you're kind of a compromised version of yourself and you can't figure it out. And I'm, I'm sure it's just in your head, like, am I ever going to feel normal again? Am I ever going to be back to how I was before? And man, that, that sounds like a really, really difficult journey. Um, tell me a little bit about that injury and how you worked through that. So it started around September of 2017 with just a heavy feeling in my right arm and it quickly became what i described as pump in the whole arm but not the usual kind and the left side didn't have any pump whereas the right one was feeling so tense and pumped and i tried to shake it out and it didn't help and this is when you're just resting that is as soon as I started climbing. Okay. Even on the stuff. Okay. 
And that was already during the last part of the 2017 World Cup season. So then during the preparation for the 2018 season, it just got worse and worse. And I started asking around for help, uh, going to professionals, really, to a university professor in hospitals and doctors and physiotherapists and doing tests. And, and again, I didn't have any support, any medical support um or like a crew around me or anything so i had to do all of that myself which also meant that there wasn't any structured plan of action to discover what the issue was and what the cause was so as i said before i was allowed to climb because there didn't seem to be any injury nothing was was broken or injured it was just what I call a condition of my arm, something really strange, but it was there. Mm -hmm. And it just got so worse that the muscles all the way from my neck to my hand were under tension the whole time. Like they were hard, they were strings and they didn't go away. And the only way I was still climbing and training hard was with my mind really, because during all the previous years I had learned to fight and I just did that, hoping that a solution would come in time for the season. And I just kept pinching those holes and, and <laughs> that's all I, I I was able to do while searching for the solution. So I tried so many things already during those months of preparation. Then the season started and it was a nightmare because nobody knew. I didn't really want anyone to know except people close to me but no one in like the competition world knew but i didn't feel great like i was just pulling that arm with me <laughs> that was the feeling i had yeah. it wasn't my arm anymore it was, it was strange it was just hanging there <laughs> and i tried to shake a lot while climbing and it just distracted me as well because you're supposed to be thinking about moves and about climbing well on those routes which you have never tried before and I was thinking about my arm a lot of the time. So I did half of the 2018 season. And then finally, I decided to stop in the middle of the season after the World Championships and do a rehab program again with a professional. And long story short, I did a lot of exercises, like eight hours a day or so. Like my, my, my climbing, my usual climbing and training was now like the same amount of time was spent doing rehab exercises. And after three months, nothing had changed. Mm. And it, it was still as bad or even got worse. So then 2019 came and I started again after half of the season had passed already because I had to come back after having stopped. And, and all this, this time I kept doing tests and, and other things in, in different hospitals all around and with specialists everywhere and so one of the hardest things really was the uncertainty but also the fact that all of these individual people promised me that they knew exactly what was uh. wrong so every time i went somewhere i had my list which kept getting longer and longer of things i had tried that hadn't worked and then they added theirs and 
they didn't say, well, we're going to try this. Maybe it's that cause. No, the, it was so strange that they promised that they knew. They were so confident. So every single time I was and, and maybe that was good because I might have given up otherwise. But then like, the blow came every single time, the realization like, okay, no, yet again, it's not the thing. It's not going to work. I added to my list as a no, <laughs> this is not it. So it kept going like that for three and a half years. Wow. And it was night. I did do competitions again. Turns out I didn't know that at the time that those would be my last international competitions, like last World Cups. I even climbed the 9A plus during that time. But again, just, <laughs> just taking the holds and deciding with my mind to, to stay on. But <laughs> I always felt a difference. I constantly I felt a difference between left and right. And it really didn't matter what grade I climbed. It, it happened on jugs. So then 2020, I injured my pulley, which was challenging, but somehow the nice thing was that it was clear what was wrong. Mm -hmm. It was just ruptured. That's it. So I focused on that first, forgot a little bit about my arm because I couldn't climb anyway. But then uh, toward the end of the, the pulley rehab, I remember I was having a video call like we are having now with the physiotherapist that had helped me or one of the physiotherapists because I had several for the pulley. So he had helped me with the last part of the pulley rehab. And I was sitting there wondering if I was going to tell him about my arm or not, because I was like, I've tried, I think I've tried everything, I've tried all of these physios and none of them could help. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking, well, why not? I mean, if it's nothing, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to try anyway. So I told him about it. He sent me to his colleague and it was in the Netherlands. And that helped. Really, I was so surprised. Hmm. Not right away, but she discovered what was wrong, this physiotherapist. And she gave me another rehab program. I did it again very diligently. I started all over again with exercises and that helped. So that was toward, what was it? Uh, May of 2021. Yeah, of course. During the time I decided to stop, stop competing. That's when I saw the re first results of, of the rehab program. Wow. So I've been rambling on a lot, but... <laughs> Now, now you ask, what was the, the cause? So you already mentioned it. It was actually pretty simple. So I'm still surprised. Why didn't any of those other specialists, like specialized in shoulders and in those exact things, why did they not discover it earlier? I don't know. So she saw that uh, the mobility of my shoulder wasn't great. So it's like upper back, shoulder, that mobility was really, really bad. So at that point, I couldn't lift my arm freely anymore. It was as if somebody was was pushing it down. It was so bad because you need to lift your arm all the time. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or just <laughs> doing also, anything. Yeah. 
also mentally, it was so hard to climb like that. And and I even went to one specialist, like a different one, like world renowned, very pretty famous shoulder specialist. And she said, no, nothing is wrong with your shoulder. It's it's all right. And I just felt my arm, I couldn't move it up well. And it was so, so, so bad. Anyway, I worked on the mobility. What pretty basic exercises. It, it's it's so funny that it took three and a half years before it was discovered. But I did first some passive movements for a while, then active movements. Then I started strengthening the shoulder so that it could stay in that newly found mobility for one route and then for a whole session. So that took some time, but just those exercises helped the blood to flow again because hmm. what had happened all those years was as soon as i lifted my arm or as soon as i took a hold even a jug the blood flow to the arm was restricted and the muscles tensed up and well no blood flow has something to do with a pumped arm so that's simply put that is is what went wrong so it was just horrible to climb with so it's so horrible and and the uncertainty as I said, was really hard and just trying to keep believing that it could be found and, and yeah, and something happened. So that was quite a lesson, like not to lose hope and to keep mm. asking around for help and, and not just deciding to quit everything because this whole time it was really hard mentally and, and Sometimes you're like, yeah, I mean, is it even worth going on like that? Because I just can't perform the way I would like to perform. And, and my whole body is fine and, and nothing can be seen on scans or in tests. But something is wrong. I know <laughs> something is very, very wrong. Right. Yeah. So it all ended well. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And what a roller coaster, man. Like hearing about... Um, I'm so glad you shared that. It, it just, it's such a picture that you painted seeing all these experts and having them be certain that they could help you. I can almost like feel the relief and the joy and the hope that comes with that. And then the letdown, you're just like riding this roller coaster up and down for three and a half years. It's wild. I'm, I'm curious, you said something interesting. You were talking about, um, I think this was like maybe six months into this condition injury and you're starting to compete again and no one knew and you didn't want them to know. Why is that? Why why did you want to keep it a secret? That's that's pretty interesting. I think I can kind of imagine that headspace and what that might feel like, but I also think like I mean people would understand and they'd probably be inspired that you were out there, you know, trying your hardest anyway despite kind of being held back. But do you remember like why was it that it felt like you wanted to keep it a secret? Well, that's a good question. And I might have to think through that a little more <laughs> because I never really have. But trying to go back to that time, I think one of the things was that I figured it won't make any difference. Like I need to try to perform as well as I possibly can, like in with the situation I'm in right now. And it won't really help to complain about it or it won't really help when other people know about it because 
I just need to compete anyway. I just need to do it anyway. And maybe there was also an aspect of like, you don't want other people to think that you're weak <laughs> necessarily. Because I was still in a pretty good shape. Like I had done my very best to be in a good shape, but it wasn't ideal. And as I said, I was constantly shaking out. You can probably still see that. Like shaking out the right side way more than the left. So you can mm. probably still see that on the, on the live stream. <laughs> uh, but I think it was, it must have been that. That I was like, well, I arrive at the competition and, and it won't make any difference. I had the same mentality with sleep because I'm not the best sleeper and I have a hard time falling asleep always. And sometimes my night's rest had not been ideal but then in the morning i was like well i need to climb anyway i need to perform anyway i'm not gonna think too much about it and and like uh, tell myself that i'm done and that the comp will won't be great because of it yeah so i was like well let's just move on yeah and change anything about it now I think that is it. But as I said, I might have to think more deeply about it. But somehow I was like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell everybody. And yeah, I'm just going to try to do my very best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It's like, you don't want to give those things any more power. You know, it's like you want to just kind of push them out of your mind and, and not let those doubts and, um, almost the identity around like I have, you know, I'm this person with this thing that's wrong with my arm. You don't want to let that creep in and affect how you think of yourself and how you think of your climbing and how you're thinking of, you know, this route right in front of you that you need to try to perform well on. That makes sense to me. Yeah. 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 So it's like either I, I compete with it or I don't. So I did that for the first competitions of the season. And then I did the other thing and I was like, okay, now it's been enough because this doesn't really make sense. And I stopped. And then it was clear for everybody that something was going on. But for this first, first competitions, I was, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to keep it to myself. Mm. Do you feel like you're back to a hundred percent with that arm? No, no. So I say that it's, that it's good now knowing what I come from. Uh, so it's not a hundred percent in the sense that I need to take care of it constantly, mm. almost every day. So I need to stretch it, strengthen it. I need to, it's funny, but I need to make sure my collarbone is loose. So I, I try to crack it just with a resistance band or a stick. I need to make sure that it moves well because that really helps. And when I just let it be, it gets, it gets all, it's hard to describe, but all stiff and, and somehow that affects the arm as well. Hmm. So yeah, I just think about it all the time, but not while climbing, unless I have not been diligent enough or somehow the collarbone got a bit blocked. And then I think about it while climbing, but otherwise, and that is such a big improvement. I don't think about the difference between left and right anymore. Mm. And I have been thinking about that. Like I had been thinking about it for three and a half years <laughs> all the time at every single move, because I felt 
this heavy arm on the right side and it was such a big difference compared to the other one so that is huge for me so that is also why i say that it is solved because most of the time i don't feel any difference anymore in pump between left and right so that is just amazing but i can't just let it go i need to work on it mm. every day so don't really know if anything can be done about it and on the collarbone it's really funny because of course i have been wondering a lot like what caused the difference why did my right arm suddenly react like that at that particular moment in my career and nobody knows and it doesn't really matter the only thing i know is that i bumped into a car door as an 11 year old riding my bike and a lady just opened her car without looking and I bumped into it and I remember having some pain in my collarbone but they didn't see anything on the scan and, and nothing seemed to be wrong maybe they didn't really look carefully or maybe it came later with climbing so it might be that and just the, the progression and like all of the climbing I did in the years that followed maybe who knows but that might be the, the reason because people might wonder like why the collarbone I think it has something to do with that I'm not sure but I care of it and i just i managed to climb more or less in a normal way again so yeah i'm so glad <laughs> yeah that's fascinating i'm 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 very glad to hear that for you i'm sure that feels like so much relief and i mean you say and you also, can, if i can add something yeah helps me sorry it, it also helps me a little bit to understand what other people go through mm. with a lot more serious things in the medical world yeah. Because I experienced part of it, but it was not a life-threatening thing. It was pretty bad for my climbing, but I could live in a normal way. I had no issues whatsoever when my arm was hanging down. and <laughs> I was just doing everyday stuff. But um, I hear other people's stories and they go through the same kind of thing. What I mean by that is just the same kind of uncertainty and also being sent from one doctor to the next and trying to to ask around themselves and, and just living in this constant state of what is wrong with me. Nobody seems to be able to know, but something is wrong. I know something is wrong. Mm -hmm. It's not a psychological thing. I know that something is wrong with my body. And then sometimes it gets discovered and sometimes not, or people just live with it for such a long time and it bothers them in everyday life. So it can make me a little bit more compassionate for those people because I've been in kind of a similar situation, but just not as bad. Yeah. I need to say it was bad being a climber and a, a professional athlete, but it was not a huge thing. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a beautiful perspective on that. Yeah. I, I really feel that. And I, I feel like I tap into that a little bit every time I get sick. Like, do you have that? You know, I, I was in um, Rocklands this summer and I got COVID and a bunch of us got COVID and um, and then I got better. The COVID wasn't terrible, but I was, you know, in bed for many days. And um, But then I got better and then immediately got a really gnarly sinus infection. The worst I've ever felt in my life. I almost went to the hospital. It was, you know, days and days of being in so much pain that I couldn't even watch TV. I was just laying in bed, like holding my face, you know? And um, I just remember being like, holy shit, 
health is everything. Like we have all these different worries and stresses and hopes for our lives. And we hope that we'll fall in love and, you know, like find an amazing career and a job that we love and live somewhere great and, you know, reach goals in our climbing and stuff. And then you get sick and you're like, all I want is to feel normal again. That's the only thing that matters. And I was just, I remember laying in bed, just thinking about like, wow, chronic illness. Like I really can kind of like put myself there in this moment, imagining like, what if this was my life? What if I had some chronic thing and I was just in pain like this? And and you can really easily kind of make that connection to like, oh, this is how people's personalities change. Like I would become such an asshole. I'd be so grumpy. <laughs> I'd be so unpleasant to be around if I was in this much pain all the time. And some people are, you know? So anyway, I love that that was your takeaway from from that experience. That's that's a really beautiful perspective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like the, the chronic thing, I still had a tiny bit of hope during the whole thing. But then there are these people who don't have any hope of ever getting better again. So it just looks like it'll stay the same or even get worse mm. during the course of their life. So yeah, hard. And it makes all the more grateful when you are healthy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Sure. Yeah. I wanted to ask these questions earlier when we were talking about uh, moving away from competitions. Two questions. What do you miss the most about competition climbing? And then what is the what has been the best part of moving away from competitions and focusing all your energy on outdoor rock climbing? Wow. Okay. What I miss not a whole lot, thankfully. So that is good. <laughs> it was a good decision. But it's mostly just strange. And I've had a few times where I got a little bit emotional watching competitions or watching some old videos of myself competing and just coming to the realization like, oh, it's really over. I'm done with this. I'm never, ever going to do that again. So that is something that I, you could say I miss and I would go back for if I could. It's being up there on what they call the head wall, like the last part of the competition wall. And you're feeling amazing. And you have this whole crowd behind you, like thousands and thousands of people on the square. It's dark and there is a spotlight on you. And people are cheering at every move you make. And there's a speaker who's supportive and you're just feeling like you're flying because you're not pumped at all. You can just keep going and going and you're super focused. Like that feeling and then giving it your all and like really, and it doesn't happen that often really, that you can use all of your training, that you have that feeling like, wow. I made no mistakes and I was able to fight really hard. I didn't fall too early. I could just give it my all. That's an amazing feeling. So that is something that maybe I even appreciate a bit more now that I stopped and maybe now that I'm a little older as well. So somehow I would like to go back and see how and experience how I would compete now. I just wonder 
with a little bit more life behind me, maybe I would be a bit different. So that, then the interactions with people and fellow athletes, um, some really fun people, like kind people on the circuit. That That is nice. There never is a lot of time to to talk and have, have deeper conversations, but there have been some nice moments after the competition was over, like behind the wall when you're waiting for the podium, moments like that. So that is something I miss. Um, oh, and the autographs is also pretty fun with <laughs> children. Especially. Yeah. Yeah. They started asking for photos more and more, which it can be nice as well, but the autographs is nicer, I think, where they like hand you a piece of paper or their t-shirt or um, a chalk bag and you can put your name on it, especially because I did that myself. Mm-hmm. So not because you feel like the most important person in the world, not at all, but it's just really nice to do that and also to have those interactions with people especially after you have climbed and you're satisfied with your performance. It's just such a special thing to do. And I don't really get to do that anymore, except when maybe one person at the crag asks me to do it. But on a competition, it's different because then you have all those children standing there and and asking for it. That was just really nice. And and I treasure those memories. Mm, That's very cool. That's a beautiful full circle moment for you. Yeah. How old were you when you got your first, when you got your first request for an autograph? Do you remember? Oh, no. Oh, I don't remember. No, I don't. Okay. (laughs) Probably my first one. I I don't, I can't remember it ever happened on competition. So that might be my first World Cup or World Cups. So 2012, like the year I, I, uh turned 16 okay probably (laughs) yeah and then you also said second part of the question was uh what was it again something else you said yeah most positive about about quitting yeah yeah what yeah so what do you miss the most and then what have been um the best parts of being able to focus all this new energy on on sport climbing on outdoor climbing i should say Mm, just that i'm able to go on longer trips is a big one because I I said that I, I have always combined both, but that meant that I only had time for sh- small trips, mm, 10 day trips or two weeks, sometimes three, and then once a year or twice, or sometimes I even didn't touch any rock in one year. So that is the kind of trips I made during my competition time. So now I can go away for a few months at a time, which is a lot nicer. Mm -hmm. So that is a big one. And maybe the stress as well. So I don't say it's like that for everybody, but I was pretty stressed out. Doing competitions. And somehow I could, yes, Mm -hmm. I could still perform. But it was a constant battle with stress for every single route and and round of a competition. And I could perform with stress, but I really had to be like consciously fighting it and and telling myself, 
that it was normal because it was something important to me and and it was all right to be stressed like a bit <laughs> but then also i it was really wearing me out like after for example one qualification round which is two routes i was so tired and i think it has something to do with my personality but i was just worn out i couldn't do anything i had to go take a nap i was <laughs> it was just because of the stress because it's only two routes i did like a bunch of hard routes in one training session but a competition is different mm -hmm. so maybe that wasn't the most healthy way to live <laughs> with all of that stress i didn't realize it at the time because it was part of competition climbing but now that i've stopped maybe it's pretty good i mean there is still some some pressure involved with outdoor climbing and projects but it's not the same it's just not that much and and i do not say that it's like that for every competition climber mm -hmm. <laughs> every competitor like not at all people are, are very very but yes i had a hard time with that yeah yeah it's i've i've never competed really i mean aside from like fun competitions in college but i i can't imagine having so much riding on one attempt in your first attempt of a sport climb ever you know you have to on-site this thing and if you fall you're done that's it yeah. i mean I love outdoor projecting and um, it can be, you know, there's of course like the mental side of that as well, where you're kind of in this grind and you have to like maintain the belief that you can do the thing when you're just trying it day in, day out. Like that's a different mental challenge, but always knowing that you can go back another day or another season or another year, it's pretty easy to, like, I love Katie Lamb's mindset around this. She's just kind of has this mindset with these hard projects of like, well, I'm going to do this eventually. So it doesn't really matter when. It doesn't matter if I do it now. It'd be nice if I do it now, but I'm going to do it eventually. And it, it's yeah. it's not that hard to like kind of trick yourself into letting go of expectations or pressure. But man, when it's your one attempt in a final or a qualifying round or anything, God, that seems like a ton of pressure. <laughs> that sounds like such a different um, mental game. Yeah. Yeah, and plus people expect you to do well, mm. and you are in a good state, but you've just never seen the route, you've never touched those holes before, maybe, because that happened very often, that I had never seen those holes, and you're just trying to figure out how to grab them. But everybody's like, yeah, I, I, I expect you to do well, and, and in Belgium, it was, I expect you to win. Well, yes, but it's still climbing. It's, it can be like that in every sport, but climbing is unique in that aspect that it's just always so, so, so different. And you haven't practiced it beforehand, so mm -hmm. pressure is high. Do you have a competition that you're proudest of and do you have a route that you're proudest of? Oof. Hmm-hmm. <laughs> proudest of I've never really looked at it that way but like one of the best memories and then also best performances was the first time I won a world cup so first world cup victory that was Arco Italy 2016 and I had been close to winning for a while, like not just that season, but also the previous ones. And 
it wasn't the first World Cup of the season, and I had I'd had some disappointments during the previous ones, being really close to winning, like super close. Actually, the week before that, I had been extremely close, and so I had quite like a hard time um, digesting that competition before that one in Italy. And a week later, I already had another one coming up. Mm. So it kind of took some pressure off, which was in hindsight, it was, it was a good thing. I didn't realize it back then that I had a slightly different mindset going into that comp. Anyway, I, Topped both qualification routes. Then I was the only one to top the semi-final round, which is like the 26th best of the qualification round. And then I also was the only one to top the final. Mm, wow. So that was ideal scenario. Like the dream thing <laughs> to happen to a competition climber. So it was... Um, good performance-wise, but then what makes it one of my sweetest, sweetest um, competition memories is the fact that so many people came up to me and said that I deserved it and that they were happy for me, even opponents mm. <laughs> or colleagues and their coaches, because somehow people had been waiting with me and hoping that it would finally happen. <laughs> And that was that was almost even nicer than mm. than the victory itself because people were so nice to me and, and, and so happy about it and I got a lot of messages and even later on like months later people would be like, Oh, I was so happy when I watched that competition because I had been hoping with you that you would finally mm. win one and that was so nice. That's Such very a sweet cool. one to remember. So. Yeah. So yeah, I would say that. I imagine that makes you feel so yeah. seen, like you know, these people reaching out and saying, like, I've been following this, and I see how hard you've been working, and I see how close you've gotten so many times, and just like, I knew it was going to happen eventually, but I was just hoping. Like, that's got to feel so good. That's that's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then on rock. Ooh. Hmm. There's a lot yeah. to choose from. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with yeah. sending so many nines, nine A's and harder. There's a, there's a lot of special ones to choose from. Uh-huh. But like when the struggle has been the greatest, usually that's when you get the most satisfaction out of it. Yeah. And you're the happiest about it. And it's not necessarily the grade. It's also the struggle. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I will, I will go with one in 2017. So it was after a very long season and it was at the start of that arm issue. So I was struggling with that. And it was like the last thing I wanted to do before my annual break climbing. We were camping in the van but it was the one that was not insulated and it was about minus 10 degrees at night Celsius. So I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it was cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and as soon as the sun was gone, it started freezing. 
So that made it difficult just to live and function, but then also to climb and climb hard. And on top of that, I was having like a little tweak in one knee. I was just tired from the season. I had tendonitis in both elbows. So I got rid of that. At that point, I thought that my arm issue might be linked to that, but it had no connection to that whatsoever. But anyway, I wasn't feeling my best, but I was like, I'm going to do this one route and then I'm going to rest. So that is why when I did finally send my project, I was very, very satisfied. And, and so looking back, I'm, you could say I'm pretty proud of the way I handled it and that I persevered because I could, in those circumstances, I could have easily said like, this, this is enough. I'm not going to do it. And after that, I also kind of broke down. <laughs> I mean, it's a big mm. word, but I, I was so, so, so down. So I, it was a 9A, I, no, a 9A slash plus I did first after the first anchor. And then there was this extension. And I figured, well, I might as well do that and add the extension as well. So I climbed the 9A slash plus again and then added the extension, which it was stayed kind of the same grade but for me there were some long moves in the, the last part so it added some difficulty and uh then after i had climbed that route i was really like okay i've done it i'm going home i'm going to rest i rested for a month and i was so done that when a climber friend photographer called me and said oh do you want me to come and, and take some photos of you so that you have something at least um, some some content, some footage. I was like, I cannot. I'm, I cannot go up that route again. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just so, so, so dumb. Mm. So just because it was such a hard time already to be alive and to camp and to do all of those things. And, and we couldn't find water at one point because all the taps were closed and it was freezing and it was just, it was just hard and tough and not nice. All of that made the performance extra special and, and satisfying. So I would say that, even though it's not the hardest one I've done. What is the name of the route? Oh, it's long. It's Spanish. So it's Ciudad de Dios, which is City of God. Mm -hmm. And then when you add the extension, it's called Pa La Enmienda. It's, yeah. Pa la so enmienda. It, the whole name is Ciudad de Dios Pa La Enmienda. Okay. It's a whole, it's a mouthful. What does the last part yeah. mean? What does that mean? It, it, it is like amendment is what the locals say because it, it's the last part of the original line more to the left of it and in the name of that one it says enmienda what is it again la novena enmienda so the new amendment mm. and then they take part of that name and add it to all the other routes that have the same extension, gotcha. the same okay. second part. So that's what they do. So it's, there isn't a lot of logic behind the name or like the combination of both, okay. of both names. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Crimped. If you are psyched to level up your climbing in 2024, check out the Crimped app. This is the most useful app I've seen when it comes to self-coached training for rock climbing. 
Crimped has dozens of workouts that focus on all the different facets of climbing performance and training, strength, endurance, power, flexibility, you name it. You can find workouts for whatever you want to train, and they have been carefully crafted by world-class climbers and coaches. I did a really fun collaboration with Crimped last year, and one of their featured playlists is a selection of workouts that I made for those of you who prefer to train on real rock. Emil Abrahamson also has a playlist to help you guys address common skill and strength gaps on the journey from V0 to V15. And Ryan Devlin over at the Struggle Podcast, who's a friend of the show, has a playlist for pumpy overhanging sport climbing as he chases his first 513 at the Red River Gorge. So you can find all of that and a lot more in the app. It really is a treasure trove of training information and it will guide you every step of the way. So check out Crimped. You can learn more and download the app by going to crimped.com. That's C-R-I-M-P-D.com to get started and download the Crimped app for free. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know that it's not just about climbing. It's also about getting to know people and learning from them. And it's about getting to know ourselves because until we do that, it's really hard to know how to get where we want to go in our life, our romantic relationships, climbing, or anything. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. I've been going to therapy twice a month for the last year and a half through BetterHelp, and I cannot overstate how helpful it's been. It's helped me unpack some relationship baggage and learn from those experiences so I don't repeat the same patterns over and over. And now I'm in the healthiest relationship I've ever been in, and it's amazing. And I really do credit therapy for a lot of that growth. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I still use it, and it's perfect for my lifestyle. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge and without any awkwardness. It's super, super easy. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com nugget today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash nugget. And now back to the show. I think we should say what just happened, and I'm going to include this in the podcast. Um, you just asked me if we could take a short break because you wanted to run up and down the stairs. <laughs> and so while you were gone, I like did my, you know, part of my like daily kind of movement routine. And I was like, this feels amazing. I should do this in every podcast. I should take a break like at an hour and a half, halfway through if we're doing a long one or whatever. And uh, just move around a little bit like, wow, this feels really good. But what did you do? You just you just needed to move a little bit, get the blood flowing. Yeah, and I stuck my nose outside. I always like to, <laughs> to uh, yeah, get some fresh air. And I used to do the same when I was competing, whenever I could, because I love being outside, and it gives me so much more energy. Sometimes I feel a bit like tired and drowsy and then I go outside and wow I feel a lot better same happens when I'm training because I train on an outdoor wall mm. most of the time <laughs> now it's freezing but usually I do 
And then pretty often I'm inside or I do a few routes on the indoor wall. And then I'm like, wow, I don't feel great today. I move outside and I get more oxygen and I feel so much better. Mm. So whenever there was the possibility to go outside during a competition, because you're in the on-site rounds, you're locked up inside in the isolation zone. That's what it's called. And you're not allowed to see the other competitors climb. So you're inside a lot. So whenever I could, or when there was a window that was a little bit opened, I would stick my nose outside and try to have some fresh air to breathe in. So I like that. So I was outside now and I, I jumped up and down a few times and then I feel <laughs> a lot better. <laughs> That's amazing. What do you do? You just kind of like, yeah. <sighs> just like take a few deep breaths or do you do anything in particular? Focus on anything in particular? No, you mean when I was competing? Just like when you, yeah, to, no. to do this, you just go outside, you just breathe a little bit and you feel better? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Simple. I just yeah. go outside. That's great. One of the reasons I, I like outdoor climbing so much because it's outdoors. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love being outdoors. Yeah. And that was like harder with indoor competitions. I've always preferred the walls on squares where it's outdoors and then... And you have the wind blowing sometimes. Mm. I prefer that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's stay on this topic for a little bit. I have some questions about this. I'm very interested in your training shed. It looks like such a cool and unique setup. Is that where you are? Is that what you're talking about? That's where you mostly train? And is it like part outside or or is this something different? No, that is something different. What I was talking about just now was an outdoor wall like uh, sorry a climbing wall mm-hmm. like a commercial gym oh, okay yeah. okay it's about 45 minutes or a bit more without traffic by car and it's outdoors so that is part of it yes there is an outdoor wall okay which is better to train on than the indoor wall so yeah gotcha nice that's 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 not the shed the oh, that's shed, not the shed. Is okay small concrete building that was in the garden when we bought this place or my parents bought this place (laughs) and that was when i was about four years old about to turn five and back then my father pretty early on when we came here he already built a small climbing wall in the back of the shed so it was a big overhang and a slab not as not as big as it is now not at all like just those two walls for himself not for me to climb on (laughs) maybe a little bit on the slab so over the years it has grown and he kept adding walls and then the slab got extended and then he added a roof and it has changed quite a lot because there were three different angles and now the main wall is all the same angle And I remember uh, one time, I think it was 2012 or 13, I came back from a competition in Slovenia, was a youth competition. I came home and he said, come with me, I have a surprise. And we went inside and he had extended the roof. Mm. And I think even added a little volume, like a little stalactite, which added some extra like options for for climbing and, and, dimension to the wall and 
uh, that was my surprise. So that's the way <laughs> it has grown over the years and changed and we've added things and then, yeah, that's the, the climbing shed. It's not high. I can do about one dynamic move up and then <laughs> pull my legs up so they don't touch the mats, but it's, it's enough to get really pumped on and, mm. uh, it works. So I'm part of my training there and more than while I was competing actually. So, so yeah, quite a big part of my training, especially now that I've had a climbing break and I'm starting again is down there in the garden. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I want to make sure I just understood you. So you, that makes sense. So you're saying that you used to train or you train more in the shed now that you're not competing. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I used to do basically all of my training sessions in the gym, like the commercial gym. That makes sense. Right. Gym, yeah. And only some power and strength training at home. But now I, I use it a lot more for actual climbing and endurance training mm -hmm. so yeah i use it more also just because i've spent years of my life in that gym and it's also quite a drive mm -hmm. uh, and it's not very easy to train there i mean the roots are not super hard it's kind of commercial and i've just done so 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 much of it mm. and like also Climbing the same routes over and over again for three years sometimes because I stayed there on that outdoor wall. And so I've, I've done that. Like <laughs> I, I, I know what it's like. And I'm Been there, done not that. super motivated by it anymore. So yeah. uh, I also like training at home now. It's part of the, of yeah. the reason why I train more than before. Well, that makes sense too, though, because I was just thinking as you were saying that, like, it's it's really difficult to replicate the competition style on a home wall, you know, you kind of oh, need yeah. those bigger uh -huh. holds, volumes, things like that. Um, but I mean, home walls, spray walls, like they really might be the best thing for most outdoor climbing. It depends on the rock type and the style and where, and where you are. But man, I, I certainly haven't found any gym with commercial setting that trains me as well for my outdoor goals as just a spray wall or a, you know, a board of some type. Um, what are some of your go-to, yes, sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, doesn't matter. I, I want to get more into board climbing because I've never really had the possibility to do that. And now they're popping up more and more around the country. So I want to do that more because I think it forces you a little more to do hard moves it's slightly more difficult by yourself especially because my wall is is rather small so when you have a great spray wall in a gym that would be awesome but um, i've never really had that so that is why most of my training was just climbing hard routes mm. and climbing them over and over again because they didn't get changed and <laughs> they just stayed like that but it was amazing, both for competitions and outdoor climbing. Hmm. I mean, amazing. It was not ideal at all, but it it got me into shape. How did you and practice? It taught me how to fight. Okay, taught you how to fight. I'm getting ahead of myself again. I'm sorry. 
Okay, I was just going to say, how did you practice on-siding? I mean, that is such a critically important part of competition climbing. And especially now, I mean, like, there's like whole teams of people that study um, all the newest hold shapes and, and you know, like, memorize what holds are going to feel like and look like and things like that. Like, that's a whole, that's a huge part of the sport. How did you practice on-siding if you're in the commercial gym climbing the same routes over and over again? Well, that was just one of my biggest disadvantages and weak points. <laughs> that was something that was just not great. Um, it got worse as the ch- style changed a bit. And so I did make some trips to other countries, but it wasn't easy for us. So with a small budget. So I've done a little bit of that, but it, it got trickier. But especially with those new holds. So you you said before that it's so hard to train on just a spray wall or like a home wall and train for competitions. But it used to be very, very different where people could climb only on a small, basic home wall and win the world championships. Mm -hmm. Right. In the end, and that is still true today, the most important thing is your intrinsic motivation is your is just your own motivation to train and not like all the facilities you have and the fancy equipment you can have all of that and be not very motivated and not train well at all so Mm -hmm. that still counts but times are changing and it's getting really difficult if you can't touch all of those new shapes and all of the dual texture and and Mm then all of those these things it's 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 getting really or if you can you cannot make uh, a lot of trips to other like gyms and and other countries and with great competition type setting and all of that but so that is changing a lot so that wasn't ideal for me on the other hand how did i practice on siding well i have always paid a lot of attention to technique and finding the most efficient beta and I still do when climbing outdoors, but also indoors, I was thinking a lot about the best way to move. And so also when climbing the same routes over and over and over again, I knew them by heart, but I still tried to make my climbing on those routes even more efficient and I found other small things and we also added a lot of exercises in those routes because they got too easy since I knew them so well. And that also helped to think outside the box. And then when I got on a, to a competition, I understood climbing technique really well mm. because I had been, I had been practicing movement so much. So even though I didn't on site a lot, Somehow I did manage to, to understand roots and to understand what the root tethers had meant while doing like the six minute observation before climbing and also while climbing. Mm. Very, very often I just figured it out while climbing. And I, I like when I had two options, let's say I tried one. How can I put it? 
I tried half of the movement a little bit. Like I went in that direction and I tried the other option I had. And then I chose between the two. Wow. Just what was, and then sometimes people were like, oh, she's hesitating. And I was like, no, 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 I'm just testing. I'm just <laughs> testing what works best. Mm. And then, and then, and then I went for it a hundred percent either statically that was necessary or dynamically and 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 so i try to figure a lot of it out while climbing that's so, so interesting yeah. so you have two options I in your mind and you kind of sorry mm -hmm. I, I i said i tried to work with what i had yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so you'd have two options in your mind and you'd, you'd kind of half commit to both of them and then pick one and just go for it all out yeah that's so cool that's very that's interesting okay. What are some examples? Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. You have or like, or like in between. You go. You you choose something in between both options. You fall. Mm -hmm. I mean, how big is the chance you're actually gonna hold on to the next hold if you if you do something in between the two? So right. Yeah, you might as well go for it. Even even if you're not a hundred percent sure and like which of the two is the best, maybe both will work. It, it also counts when on siding on rock, right? Like maybe both will work. Maybe one isn't, maybe one is slightly more efficient than the other. Sometimes one is early impossible, but let's say both are, are, are possible. If you then start hesitating, like truly hesitating and, and, feeling around and you don't choose either, then, then none of them are going to be great. You're going to get more tired and you start hesitating. So you just choose one and then you go for it, like all in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's the way to do it when you're not sure about a, a certain sequence. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. What are some of the rules that you would make up on those routes that you're climbing over and over again at the gym? You, talk, you talked about that a second ago. You talked about like kind of making up rules um, because they got too easy. What did that actually look like in practice? Are you like eliminating holds or, you know, I'm imagining, I don't know what I'm imagining. Yeah, that's one. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. There is a whole list. I'm not going to be able to, to mention them all because we just had so many different things and then we would come up with new things. It was actually a pretty fun game. And then, <laughs> and sometimes it started a little bit as a joke and then it would become an actual exercise. So mm. yeah, really fun. But then some of the basic ones were just doing what we call, what do you call them in English? Laps, maybe? Like mm -hmm. climbing them several times in a row, two times, three more, <laughs> but with really hard routes. So that were already hard for me they got easier and easier as time went by and i knew them better and your body starts adapting to the route because you know exactly where to climb really hard and then where to relax more in the route and where to rest and clip and but they were of a high level to begin with so then when you climb them twice it's pretty hard already then what else did i do lock-offs so waiting three seconds before taking the next hold, climbing up and down. One time I even climbed blindfolded. <laughs> that was that was fun, but all again in a hard room. So, wow. Uh, with somebody helping me from the ground. <laughs> like the blind people do, you know, in, in paraclimbing. Yeah. 
That's impressive. That's so impressive. So yeah. that that's that's not one of the basic ones. I said I was going to mention the basic ones. <laughs> so um, <laughs> let's see, let's see. Um, climbing on one leg or cutting loose at every like after having done a move, you cut loose in the roof, not on the slab. Um, what else? Oh, a weight vest. Very interesting. I did not start doing that in the beginning when I was younger, mm -hmm. <laughs> not at all. I was like 20 years old. So little disclaimer, don't overdo that. If you're a beginner, it's not necessary at all. <laughs> it's really because I was trying to make things harder for myself. And also when I say don't overdo it, like it shouldn't be too hard. Uh, yeah. Just a few kilograms using the, the European <laughs> um, weight kilograms is enough and makes roots change so much with just a little extra weight. So really you don't need to go <laughs> too far with it um, and be careful and like gradually um, increase the weight and, and all of that. But that is something. And, and when I'm um, talking about those exercises, it's also how I train here at home on okay. the little spray wall. I also add exercises like that when training here. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Wow. There are quite a lot of them. I'm forgetting <laughs> so many. At the moment, like trying to, on the top of my head, um, make the list, but there's just a lot. And there's a lot you can invent as well. There's, it's really fun to, and, and also combining routes, like not climbing the same route twice, but like doing one and then coming down, pulling the rope and climbing another one. Mm -hmm. Um, like a harder one and a, an easier one or that way um, it also gets more interesting or even combining two routes. Like why not? There are, there's a certain number of routes it gets really boring when they don't change them often. So what I do is just climbing the first part of one route and the second part of another one. And there you have it, a new one, <laughs> <laughs> not for on site, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, there is a lot, a lot, a lot you can do. Yeah. Just by being creative, thinking out of the box and, and yeah. It adds some excitement <clears throat> to training. It's interesting. You really specialize in single pitch sport climbing, but specifically like long overhanging endurance routes. And I can absolutely see why that would be given all the things that you're sharing. Like that <laughs> is how you train. Which came first? Like did you already love that style and were you naturally good at it or have you gravitated towards it because of the way you train and um, has your training made you specialized in that style? Oh, competition training has definitely helped with that. So that also makes you enjoy long things because you have a good endurance resistance climbing base uh, to begin with. So that definitely helps also with not being intimidated by long routes, which sometimes happens and which is pretty sad because long routes can be beautiful. But then when you're intimidated by them, you're not even going to try. So that was never the case for me because I was training for competition. So I had that. Mm. But I wasn't born with good endurance. <laughs> right. People sometimes tend to think that somehow and 
I sometimes get the question, uh, it's really funny, but people say, do you ever get pumped anymore? And then I say, well, that is exactly what I'm searching for in every training session. <laughs> every endurance training session is yeah. the pump because it's only at the moment that you start getting pumped that the training starts. When you stop, as soon as your arms start burning a little bit, you're not going to have any gains. So anyway. Um, <laughs> that's good. That's a good nugget right there. I was going to... <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, if you had any advice for a climber who wants to get better at that style. And I think you just answered that question. Just once you start feeling oh, pumped, that's when the training starts. Time to dig in. Yes. Yeah. So um, that definitely helps with, with me being good at the style and also liking it. But that's where I wanted to go with. I wasn't born with endurance. It is, again, I keep going back to personality, but. I've always liked uh, the fighting aspect of climbing. So this moment where your body and, and your brains say, well, okay, this is it. You can't hold on anymore. And then you start fighting. And that is what makes the difference on competitions. Like there's few extra holds, maybe just moving your body up, and and moving your hand in the direction of the next hold, you know, and then that tiny extra movement can be the difference between winning or not winning. But you need to practice that in training. Same with outdoor climbing. If you want to have that endurance and that fighting mentality, because part of it is physical, but a big part is mental as well like there's this huge mental aspect in climbing and not only in competition climbing we all know that um you you need to train that before you're trying your actual project so there is this huge mental endurance thing that is trainable as well and of course that translates into your physical shape mm -hmm. but but you really need to need to need to practice that um and then you get better over it the more you do it to be able to just keep going and keep going one more move one more move and it's amazing how much more you can do like mm. how how much more is possible starting from that point like that moment in time where where your body says stop and then you, when you do keep going wise way of course wow you can do so much more <laughs> so that is something i like about climbing and that is also why I've started to like that style so much because I like that part. And something else I really like is being super precise with my technique and finding the best beta. Um, sometimes I need to search for a really long time just to be able to do the move. But sometimes it's, I can do it right away and I try to make it as efficient as possible. And that is also one of the things I, I think are beautiful in climbing is this preciseness, efficiency. And when you're climbing these long routes, you really need that because if you're inefficient right from the start, you're not going to make it up like a 60 meter route at your limit. 
Yeah. So you need to start being precise from the from the ground up. And and that is something I just love. Mm-hmm. And and it also helps with liking the style or like being good at it. Mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And skill or or movement and technique is really interesting because, you know, we're there's a lot of people talking about how we're supposed to practice it when we're fresh, right? And be um, really intentional and, and deliberate and build those skills when we're fresh and we're not fatigued. But you kind of need both if you're trying to do what you're doing. Like there, there is a technique to learning how to climb well when you're just redlining, when you're just about to fall off and your arms are super pumped. Um, and, and just practicing technique when you're fresh doesn't really transfer to that immediately. Like you also have to learn how to do that. Yes, both are important. Mm-hmm. How often do you train this way? Like how often do you have a session where you're just fighting for one more move, one more move until you're just completely, you know, empty and you, and you fall off from just sheer fatigue? Cause that's, that's really, um, taxing. It's really taxing and hard to recover from that type of training. How often do you do that? It used to be about every session. Really? Wow. Then now I would love it to be that way, but it's just getting trickier because the roots keep getting easier in the gym. <laughs> so <laughs> mm. it's really hard to reach that point. And I try to mimic it a little bit at home, but truly falling off is so hard when you're not climbing a route, you know, when you're just making up moves for yourself, it's really hard to do. So I'm still getting very pumped, but it's, it's hard. Also with inventing all these exercises in, in gym roots, it's really difficult to find that place, like that specific spot where it's so hard that you can still keep going but it's hard enough to make you fall if you don't decide to not fall (laughs) if if that makes sense you know sometimes it's just a decision Mm. not to fall and to take the next hole so that is ideally that is what i could do at every single training session unless it's a power strength session with pull-ups and hangboarding but if it's a, a true climbing session, I would love to have that at every single one. But it's just not very easy to get to that point. Because if it's with a crux where you need to be very fresh in order to do it, that's not the ideal situation where it's a... Yeah, you want to be able to keep going, not because it's easy, but just because you you decide to keep going. And then that's great training it's so hard mentally physically as well as you said it's it's hard to recover from it uh but but mentally as well it's but it teaches you so 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 much do you think your mental game is a strength of yours yes it sounds like Mm -hmm. it is it sounds like you've really worked on it and um you can really dig deep it seems like that's a, a superpower of yours also, I say that I would love it at every session, which is true, but I think that I need it less maybe than before because mm. I've done it for such a long time, ever since I was a child, really. I, I 
I already started training this mental endurance aspect that it's kind of ingrained in me. Yeah. Um, yes, it's there. Like <laughs> from time to time, I'm like, oh, do I still have it? And then <laughs> I find a route in which I need to fight. And I'm like, oh, yes, it's still there. <laughs> I can do it. I can fight super hard. And <laughs> sure, I haven't lost it. <laughs> Yeah. What are you focused on these days? Like, what what do you need to, I mean, what are your goals for this year? You talked about trad climbing. Let's come back to that. Um, do you see yourself pivoting in 2024 and pursuing different goals? Or do you still want to level up even further? Are you trying to climb 9B? What is that going to take? Like, are you focused on different aspects of your your climbing or your training to to kind of reach the next level? Yeah. What are, your, what are some of your goals and what are you focusing on in 2024? I want to start by doing more sport climbing and still pushing my limits in that. So yeah, I've done several 90 pluses, so I do want to climb 9B. The very first thing is training. So I'm home now. I've just had a break and I'm working on getting back in shape. So that is goal number one. Then I want to go sport climbing and then when it gets too hot in Spain, I want to switch to some trad. I'm really looking forward to that because I have a tiny bit of experience, but not that much. So I would love to do more of it. And then hopefully in the fall, I'll go back to sport climbing. Okay. That's, that's the, the plan. It's not super concrete, but it's, yeah. it's the plan. And I, I, some things in mind I want to try and yeah. That's what I'm excited about for this year. What do you think it's going to... Definitely gonna, the tra- Definitely the yeah, trainings first. Cool. No, I said the trad. The trad is, is something I'm very excited about because it's more or less new. I mean, I have done some things. Also last year, I did a roof crack in Spain. So I've had a taste of it. Then in 2021, I've done a bit of it. But I'm just really excited. Do you have a specific area or, or trip planned for that? Um, I would love to go to a place in France. It's called Amnot. You might have heard of it. Yeah. Sandstone. That's where James Pearson just did uh, Bon Voyage, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that looks cool. Mm-hmm. And it's doable when I'm on the way back from Spain to Belgium. Okay. So that might happen. That would be really nice. We'll see how the weather is and how I feel, but... That would be amazing. And then I'd like to go to England. Okay. So let's see how that works out. Cool. And I hope I'll find like a, a part of the year where it doesn't rain. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, I know. Belgium is, Belgium is rainy, but England is even more rainy. So yeah. we'll see. Uh, is that to but go? Those are, are my first. Is that to go climb on the grit stone? Is that what you're imagining in England? Yeah, Pembroke. Uh-huh. Would be really nice. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, and then one day in the US, who knows? I would love to go to Indian Creek. <laughs> but we'll see. Okay. We'll see what the future holds. Awesome. Okay. I think we should pivot. I've got um a handful of listener questions to kind of wrap up with um after we kind of close this first conversation. But I have one more topic 
that I want to pivot to that I wanted to talk about with you today. I know you want to talk about it too. And I, I wasn't sure, I didn't mean to save it for the end. I wasn't sure if it would just kind of come up organically or not, but I'm interested in this. Um, I'm curious about your faith and being outwardly Christian and what that feels like for you in the climbing community. Um, I'm curious why that's important to you to be outward with it. You know, it's in your Instagram profile for people that haven't seen that. It's just, it's very upfront and that's rare in our, in our climbing culture. I know a couple people, um, specifically a couple pro or, or more public people, but it's very rare. Um, why does that feel important to you to be, to be as like public facing with Christianity and with your faith? It is important for me because I think in general, it's just the most important thing to think about as a human being. And, and for me personally, it's, it's everything. It's everywhere. It's not comparable to climbing. Even it's not that I could say my faith comes first and then climbing. My faith is just, everything it's like breathing you don't say oh breathing is number one in my life and then you just do it all the time it's 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 your life and it's the reason you're you keep on living so just so important to me personally but then also because i think it is for everybody and everybody can die at any given moment even young people and we also see it in the climbing world but it's true for everybody. And then the question is, what will happen after that? So it's super important for people to think about now before they come before God. And because I believe that everybody will be judged one day. And so we never know when our life on earth will end. And life here is so sh short compared to eternity. And I believe that everybody will exist eternally, but not in the same place. So I, I believe that we all deserve <clears throat> to be punished for being so rebellious and living in a state of enmity toward God who has created us. And uh, that's how we're all born. It's like our default position <laughs> is to be enemies of God and to run away from him and to try to be independent. And we all break his laws. We all sin. And that is why we deserve to be punished. It's, it's just the correct thing for God to do because he is without sin and he is holy and he is pure and he is righteous and only good. So... Even after one little sin, we deserve punishment and, and eternal punishment. Because God is eternal. We deserve eternal punishment in hell. Um, all of us. So that is bad news. <laughs> and then <laughs> there is also good news. And because it is so good and I'm, I'm so passionate about it, I, I want to share it. Mm. And it's not difficult to share it because it's so important to me. And uh, that's also why I'm so open about it. So the good news is that God provided a solution and he didn't leave us in that state of deserving punishment, but he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was completely God and completely human. And he came to us 
it's amazing to think about like as God, he came to us in our sinful state and he took that punishment that we deserve and he died in our place. And he, the thing is, he didn't deserve it. We do. He didn't. He never sinned. And he died on the cross. Didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And he's alive right now. And I believe he will come back, as I said, to judge the world. And it's up to us to, to have faith and to put our trust in Jesus and to believe that he is the, the only way to God and the way to salvation, the way to forgiveness of sins. And that has to be our reaction to that work of God. And, and, and that is also why I speak and I write about grace, because we really do not deserve it. It's, it's only God's work. We cannot add anything to it. We cannot do good works in our own power to try and deserve heaven or anything. It's, it's, it's only God's work. All we can do is put our trust in Jesus and in his sacrifice and in what he did in our place. And so, yeah, it's amazing what happens when you do that. And when you just cry out to God and you make a big U-turn and you turn from running away to God, you, you turn and you go toward God. And then this amazing thing starts in your life where God works on your character and, and, transforms your heart and gives you the desire to read the Bible and to know God and to um, to fight sin, really. You start hating sin and you don't want to be like that. It feels dirty. And and God starts, you could say God starts training you. <laughs> he, <laughs> he purifies you and he, it's a whole process, really. It's And that's why I think about training when I think of it, because it's ups and downs and you you struggle with sin and, and you, with God's help, you try to overcome it. And we will never be perfect until we get to heaven. Uh, no Christian is perfect at all. We're still sinners and we need God desperately. But it gives so much joy when you know that God is working in your heart and it gives hope for the future eternal future but even already the future of your short life on earth because it happens sometimes that you're like oh wow five years ago i wouldn't have reacted in this way and and i can already see some positive changes even though they're little ones i do see some progress so that is so encouraging and, and it's amazing like the real joy that god gives even in difficult circumstances there's always this this base this foundation that stays solid so yeah anyway i want to talk to it <laughs> um i talk about it to other people because it's so important and i don't want anybody to to mm. go to hell so right that's why i want to to share it and be open about it and not hide it i mean if you have good news you don't want to keep it to yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I um, I, I I don't know if you know this about me, but I grew up um, in a Christian home, and I don't associate with Christianity anymore. I still consider myself. I still am very spiritual, um, and I feel like my 
understanding of or belief of what God might be has just expanded a lot. And um, I'm, I'm curious though. So I grew up with that. I understand that like that motivation is because I think, I think especially in American culture, Christianity has become so incredibly politicized. I'm really, I'm actually really curious to hear um, if you experience that in Belgium or traveling and what that's like for you. And if you feel judged for this and if like how this is received from people that you talk to um, in America, it's very politicized. It's very associated with all sorts of political beliefs. Um, often people will put someone in a box if they are outward about this. And something that gets thrown around a lot is like, you know, it's like, I don't care what, what you believe, but stop trying to like put it on me, you know, but having grown up in it, I understand that like coming from your point of view, you're trying to be really helpful. Like you believe in this thing that's like going to literally save people from eternal damnation. And like, you'd kind of be a monster to not want to share that. So I understand that point of view and it's an interesting dynamic to observe because I also under I also see that it can be hurtful and um, and harmful to try to force people to believe the same thing that you believe. Like it's just really interesting. And and in American culture, it's a total mess. <laughs> it's a total mess. Um, but yeah, I'm curious what the experience is like for you. How does this get received from people, from other climbers, from your community? Um, I assume you and your parents share this um, and you grew up in it. But yeah, can you speak to that? I, I, I just don't have a sense of like what this is like culturally in other parts of the world, because all I know is, you know, American politics. That's my framework right now for all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are big differences between America and Europe, but also other places in the world, because some Christians are being killed at this very moment for their faith in, in other countries, which is not the case in Belgium or not yet, <laughs> might come. But so do I feel judged for it? Well, yes, but it's not a bad thing or it doesn't make me sad. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I feel that people find it strange um, or think that I'm a weirdo and I really don't care at all. <laughs> I'm kind of used to it as well. I've always been different and it's fine to me. Uh, it really is. So there have been times where it was really clear, like when people were making jokes, but mean jokes about my faith or, um, or also my family's faith. Like, um, when we were together uh, at the crag or in other places or on the internet as well. Uh, like the first time I really experienced that from the climbing community was when I had just climbed my first eight day. I, it was when I had just turned 13 years old and uh, <laughs> the news was published on the climbing website and people started arguing so hard on this forum on the website. Not about the performance, but about my faith and they were pitying me that I had been indoctrinated and all of those things. It was really crazy to 
see. And I was still pretty young. Mm -hmm. But again, it wasn't something that bothered me, really. It was just clear (laughs) what people were thinking about it. And then another example was when I had climbed my first 8C, that was 2013. And again, on another website, on their forum, people started having these discussions. And again, in a pretty mean way about um, not mixing climbing and religion. So really targeting me, but that I was mixing climbing with religion and it it wasn't even anything I had said at that particular moment it was just the news with my website mentioned and on my website I talk about my faith so that was a reason for it escalating that much and it, it is funny because when climbers talk about practicing yoga or being buddhist it's also mixing a religion with climbing, right? And there there seems to be no issue. But with Jesus, it's different. Um, so it is funny. It doesn't surprise me, but it is, a, it is a funny thing that's clearly happening. So do I feel judged? Yeah, from time to time. I also tend to forget sometimes that a lot of people know about it, <laughs> even <laughs> though I am super outspoken about it and I've talked about it in, most of the interviews I've done, also nationally, still I I I'm always surprised. I'm often surprised, and I'm wondering where people have heard about it or read about it. But um, so what I mean by that, I forget it, is that I really don't go about go around like feeling judged by people. I just move around freely in the climbing world, and I really don't care what people think about it. Yeah. So and also. I need to add that I really expected that people react that way, like in a, in a judging way, because that's really what the Bible promises <laughs> people who, who want to follow Jesus. That's what he himself said, that you will be persecuted. It's a normal thing to happen. And, and, and it happens to Christians all over the world. And it has happened like <laughs> ever since people started living as Christians. So anyway, and uh, and even before that, people people following like following God and, and, and talking about it were persecuted and killed and, and put in prison and so so I'm not surprised at all and I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. I appreciate that part of it a lot. I appreciate your boldness because I'm sure it is um, really uncomfortable sometimes. Because uh, I remember that. I mean, I mean, I I had a lot of conflict as a kid. I don't know where this came from, but it made me feel deeply uncomfortable as long as I can remember, even as a kid. To, I, I felt like if I talked about my religion at the time when I was Christian, that I was telling someone else how to live you know, telling someone else what they should do. And that that just didn't resonate with me for some reason. It really bothered me even as a kid. And there's this thing, if you didn't grow up in it, it's really hard to understand, but there's kind of a lot of shame and pressure around doing that. Like you're, you're made to feel shame if you're not willing to speak out and kind of push your beliefs on someone else. And I wrestled with that tension for a long time. And finally... Um, you know, as I got older, I decided like, this doesn't resonate with me. I'm, I'm going to 
leave all of this behind and kind of shift to a different understanding of my own spirituality and what God means to me. And God means something very, very different to me now. And and I don't feel like I need to, I kind of have this like, like if, if, there, if God is God, you know, he, she, they, whatever God is, if there is this like all loving, all knowing God, then certainly that God can transcend culture and doctrines and frameworks, you know, like we're all kind of interacting with the same thing. And that's kind of where I've landed. And so I don't feel any need to, you know, I don't feel like I have um, news that's going to save anybody. I feel like I just want to let people be people. And I truly feel like that kind of force in the universe is going to, is going to ultimately win, you know, love is going to win, whatever that means. And that's kind of how I found peace with that. But there's an interesting, there's an interesting tension there that I I don't know if you can really understand. I, I certainly don't see people empathizing with it. I see a lot of, especially in America, because of politics and all the associations, like people assume that if you're if you're Christian, you're anti-social progress, basically. Like that's the association that gets made in America. And so I don't see much understanding being extended to Christians. It's just like, we're going to be really, that's like the one group of people that I see the most judgment towards in my own circles, you know, which is really, really interesting. And I felt it when I was a teenager and still in that world. And it's just like, oh, wow, like I'm... um yeah, pe- people are very outspoken about this and, and very um, outwardly negative about it. So anyway, I, I say all that to say that I kind of understand how that feels. And I really appreciate your boldness because I know it comes from this place of like deep caring for other humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to go back to what you said about the pressure of having to share it with other people. That's really not the case for me, because if it is truly alive in you, you don't want to keep silent. I mean, you it, it's not something like a box to check off where you're like, okay, I have I have talked about Jesus to those people to that many people or anything. There is there is nobody telling me that I have to talk about it i just want to and and really it's like seeing people in a house that's on fire you're just going to shout and try to get them out and 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 tell them that their house is on fire when they're not realizing it i mean it's trying to 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 make an analogy there so it's it's really coming from a desire uh within me to talk about it and to share it and and definitely not um, coming from a place of judging other people quite the contrary because you're you think about yourself as the biggest sinner of all like as an evil person that only god can transform and like anything bad that i do it comes from myself anything good that I might do is is thanks to God <laughs> because you know how bad you are and how sinful you are. So the message is not about me being better than anybody else. Not at all. Like the message is only pointing toward God and what he can do for sinners and for such a big sinner as myself. So, so 
yeah, it's definitely not about judging other people. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you said something interesting and there was a, a great video that kind of is a portrait on you and your family and your journeys through competitions and your faith. And um, you said that it's not something that you inherited and I couldn't help but kind of notice a parallel. I wonder if there's a parallel I'm kind of projecting here, but between climbing and how you inherited climbing from your family, from your parents, and then over the years, you know, fell in love with it and created your own relationship with it. Um, and you, yeah, you made a point to say in that video that you did not inherit your faith. It wasn't just something that you inherited. It's so much more than that. Yeah. Was it a similar journey? Yeah. Like, was was there kind of a process of having to kind of discover it and identify it with, with it on a personal level and fall in love with it in your own way? Um, what did that look like? Yeah, it's interesting to make that connection or like the, the parallel um yeah every analogy is only is just an analogy but it does kind of make sense because yes my parents couldn't climb for me they could have it as their sport and teach me about it but i still had to do the climbing and the training and i needed to be motivated and so yeah it's it's still a thing of my, myself so i'm um, going back to my faith then yeah it is this transformation that has to take place in an individual. So my parents could show me their way of life and teach me about the Bible, but at a certain point it had to become my own. And I myself had to be willing to turn to God and to, to put my trust in Jesus and, and, and I have my own responsibility for myself and my own deeds and, and that they have nothing to do with it. So yes, you could say there, there are some similarities, um, not a hundred percent of course, but a little bit. Yeah. So um, I'm grateful for my upbringing and for what they showed me, but there was nothing they could do for my salvation it's it's really something between me and god mm. um, and and yes and by god's grace i also i was also able to have the faith and 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 trust jesus for the salvation of, of my soul as well so exactly yeah you cannot just be a christian by having christian parents or a christian family has to be your own thing Right. Well, I really deeply respect you. I really appreciate this conversation. And uh, it's been really fun to get to know you a little bit today. Um, it's, I, I kind of, you know, I, whenever possible, I try to, I, I try to connect with people and get to know people a little bit um, beforehand. That's kind of how the sausage is made. I try to like, feel like we're friends before we uh, jump into this. But and and we we haven't really had a chance to talk before this conversation aside from sending some voice notes back and forth and and that really helped break the ice but you're so easy to talk to and i you know sometimes i go into conversations like kind of having a sense of what it's going to be like but really not knowing what to expect and you've just been delightful you're very insightful you're very fun and you've got a lot of passion and drive within you and i'm just really excited to see what you 
continue to do and how your climbing expands for you now that you've got this more singular focus on outdoor rock climbing. And yeah, just appreciate you. Thank you so much for all the time today. And uh, we've got a handful of listener questions. So we're going to pivot to that. We're going to wrap this up and jump into um, an extra segment and tackle some of your questions from patrons and from Instagram. Is there anything else that you want to share before we wrap this up? Not really. We've touched on a lot of things. Yeah. Not really, I think. I mean, there's a lot I could talk about, but <laughs> there isn't any burning thing really right now that I would uh, want to share in particular. So, How do you no, feel right now? In climbing? How do you know? How do you feel right now? Like after after this conversation, after you know talking about your family and climbing and competitions and injuries, and then and then this conversation about faith. How are you feeling? Great. I mean, good. Um, I usually love to talk, but I get kind of tired <laughs> talking. <laughs> it, 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 it takes energy. Like I'm not the kind of person that can just keep talking and, and for hours and hours. Also after giving a presentation or doing interviews, I usually feel it. Mm -hmm. I'm not like, oh, we're only getting started. Mm -hmm. but, but I do feel great now. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So thanks. Another thing I was going to say is uh, I'm so impressed talking to my European guests because I don't know how many languages you speak, but English is certainly not your first language. It would, I mean, you have an accent, but it would fool me. Your English is impeccable, but I can't imagine what kind of brain power it takes to do a two and a half hour interview like this in a different language. And I'm so impressed. And I just wanted to say that you're amazing. I would probably need like a, you know, 10 hour nap after doing something like that. I don't even speak another language. I'm so impressed by that. So yeah, thank you so much. I know you, you wanted the, um, you know, some of the questions ahead of time so you could think about it, but man, you're, you're good at this. Um, you were wonderful to talk to and, um, yeah, I just, I just really appreciate your time. Thank you. It did stress me out a little bit <laughs> and I tried to get my brain to think in English <laughs> yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. I succeeded a little bit, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's not especially easy for a non-native speaker to do it, but I like English. Mm. So that's a big advantage. And <laughs> I enjoyed it so much. Me too. Yeah. Me and, too. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with podcasts, so this was great. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That warms my heart. It's been really fun for me, and I hope you all enjoyed it. Patrons, stick around. We're going to dive into some of your questions. The rest of you, thanks so much for listening to the very end. We hope you have an amazing week. Best of luck with your own climbing and training, and we'll see you next time. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with the Knack. If you want even more, we ended up talking for another hour. We dove into a bunch of your questions. We talked about her warm-up routine, how she warms up for 9A projects. We talked about a number of the different things that she's learned from competition climbing and how she's applying that to her sport climbing outside. She talked about climbing 9B and what it's going to take for her to climb 9B. Spoiler alert, I think she's ready to do it as soon as she finds the right project. We talked about doing hard first ascents and some of the routes that she's bolted. 
what she eats. You guys had questions about her diet. She talked about prioritizing protein and how much food she eats, why she avoids processed foods and sugar. We talked about her morning routine and her visualization, how she talks to herself out loud while she's visualizing her climb. We talked about her red point process. It was really good. So if you want to listen to that, that is available right now for patrons who support the show for $5 per month or more. And there's a seven-day free trial. So if you want to go over there and listen to another hour with Anak, she shared a lot of great nuggets. That's available right now on Patreon. There's a seven-day free trial. You can cancel at any time, no questions asked. Go check it out at patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. There's a link right there in your podcast app. I really appreciate all the support. I love you guys. I hope you have an amazing week. Enjoy the extra. Go check it out. And we will see you next time. Like us.